0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Jay Rosen returns for this episode. Some of the stories we consider are the SAP Trade Sanction Enforcement Action. Should compliance folks make employees more comfortable or rather uncomfortable? As SAP enforcement stopped, Scott Moritz synthesizes the FCPA Resource Guide and Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, what is the zombie idea of risk? How do solar winds impact businesses going forward? What is the intersection of governance, fraud, and culture? What about compliance and supply chain risk management? DNB fined in Norway for $48 million for AML violations. And compliance officers are taking lead in corporate ESG. These stories, new podcasts, events, upcoming conferences, and new books, all on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom mm-hmm. Fox. Welcome to, to This Week in FCPA, the live stream edition, episode 151 for the week ending May 7, 2021. It's a new dawn edition. we back up online and blowing and going we are here to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which have caught our eye. Jay, uh, you want to introduce the audience to your new recording studio?
0: Yes, uh, I'm in the Witness Protection Program, and we are in corporate housing somewhere in Southern California, but still excited to bring you all the FCPA and ethics and compliance news. So, Tom, let's do it. So, Jay
1: Rosen, uh, if that's his real name, from an undisclosed site. Uh Mr. Monitors himself, uh, with his trade Hawaiian shirt. All good. Jay, um, we had a pretty interesting and it turns important trade sanction enforcement action uh, late last week that we really didn't get to talk about, or I should say I didn't get to talk about as much as I would have liked last week, and that's the SAP enforcement action. Uh, He was so fired up about this. He wrote two blog posts on it, and Mike Volkoff took an incredible deep dive with four blog posts on it. Uh, I will note for the record I have yet to blog on it because I have Leadership Week this week on the FCPA blog. But both Mike and Matt <coughs> pointed to this as a significant enforcement action because, um, first off, it didn't come out of OFAC. Uh, it came out of the Department of Justice, Department of National Security, who obviously see uh, SAAS, software, as a service companies, such as SAP, as critical parts to national security. What had happened was um, there were export violations where not exactly products were sold into Iran, but uh, updates. So uh, for any, uh, you've not been a software aficionado or or, uh, I should say impresario in your colored, colorful career, but I've been a software lawyer protect company. And uh, the way all software works is you uh, you buy the software and then you pay maintenance and support. And maintenance and support, or which is now a subscription agreement, uh, it gives you ongoing uh, bugs, updates, patches, uh, etc. So uh, where SAP got into trouble was those ongoing support items uh, got uh, made their way to Iran. So they they were actually doing business with Iran, sometimes directly, sometimes through distributors, sometimes through resellers. But for the U.S. government's perspective, it didn't matter. SAP was just uh, in Iran, and uh, SAP uh, has their own uh, trade sanction module. So you might think that they would be pretty up on these things. But where they got into trouble, Jay, was in mergers and acquisitions. They went on a buying spree in the first part of the last decade, and they brought bought several cloud-based Uh, companies to supplement their already um, uh, huge ERP plan, and they didn't uh, either perform pre-acquisition due diligence or fully integrate the companies into the SAP compliance program. Uh, Matt pointed out in his second blog post that uh, there were four separate audits in seven years, uh, which internal audit picked up on all of these problems, reported to senior management and uh, senior management uh, didn't do anything. So um, um, that was pretty damning, uh in and of itself. But the, uh, um, the mergers and acquisition process, both sides, both pre-acquisition and in the integration, really led to SAP having this uh, series of problems for, for I think, approximately uh, – $7 million in profits. They paid an $8 million penalty, but they had $27 million in remediation costs. So a uh, lesson is that this thing is very costly. SAP's part, uh, I think, <laughs> did exemplary in terms of remediation and uh, cooperation with the government. Uh, they self-disclosed, and then, of course, they uh, dis- disgorged their ill-gotten gain. So they had profit disgorgement. And they were rewarded with an Intel monitor. Sorry, Mr. Monitors. But um, that aside, uh, uh, SP did about as well as one could expect. This is the first uh, export control enforcement action under the new corporate export control enforcement policy issued by the Department of Justice last year. 14, rather. And uh, Mike Volkov really was uh, kind of led the charge to say this is a new dawn. And so as, as a special treat for those who want to see the greatest recitation of those words, it's a new dawn, we're going to link to uh, a Slick uh, introducing Jefferson Airplane and Senate Woodstock. So I'll get to that later. But it's a new dawn for OAC. It's a new dawn for BIS. It's a new dawn for trade control enforcement. And uh, Mike thinks this is really the o- shot, Jay, because when you think about updates, uh, do we have a guest, a special cameo appearance? I think we'll. Well, I thought we were <laughs> a little excited. Uh, 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 um, no. We're going to uh, uh, see much more robust in force, Jay. Every, every company, I think, uh, um, every software company has updates. And if you don't know who your resellers or who your distributors are selling, um, your products could well go to uh, Iran. So, uh, pretty significant. Of course, we link to both Mike and Matt's pieces. I would urge you to read them both. Uh, they've shamed me into blogging about it next week. So, I'm going to take a look at it for lessons learned from the compliance
0: perspective. So, uh, next up, Tom, uh, we asked the question Should compliance make folks uncomfortable? In a Romberg Explorers in the FCPA blog. Anna has seen a rapid increase in dedicated ethics and compliance departments and programs in order companies during the last decade. However, there is no local regulation that explicitly requires formal ethics and compliance work. In the continuous stream of corporate scandals, the regulators have noted that sanctions and financial penalties are insufficient to change corporate conduct. In her doctoral thesis, Anna said, is it not common sense to do the right thing? She argues the call for formal ethics and compliance work may risk becoming counterproductive if the more informal aspects of the work are not acknowledged. Ethical business practices are most visible in their absence, which may pose challenges for compliance officers when the board and management may perceive that there's not an issue as they have not encountered any problems. The work's effectiveness only becomes visible under challenging situations when real ethical dilemmas are faced, the effectiveness of the compliance work is measured when the presence in a co- complex but financially profitable market is evaluated, when a financially successful sales manager should be dismissed due to compliance concerns, or when an agent is onboarded purely for the reasons of, quote, opening doors, unquotes, and, quote, connection to decision makers, close quotes. The aspiration for more ethical business practices will give rise to frictions and ethical issues cannot be controlled in the same manner as, for example, financial numbers. The purpose of ethics and compliance work is to steer behaviors and enable right decisions can be made at all levels of the organization. The foundation of an ethics and compliance program is people, and unfortunately, sometimes people make mistakes. As such, there's no such thing as a perfect compliance program. If the main focus of the ethics of compliance work is on formal policies, controls, and procedures, the work risks becoming a source of false comfort. Saying that you focus on a culture of compliance is not sufficient in itself, as culture is what you do and not what you say, as we say on this podcast. Compliance work is that it's not perceived as uncomfortable, will not be practical, and this type of work may harm the company. Anna encourages all decision makers, including the board and executive management, to assess the effectiveness of their current compliance work within their organization by how uncomfortable it feels. If you want to foster more ethical corporate conduct, one has to realize that there needs to be change, not only in paper, but in practice. Tom? So, Jay, uh,
1: next Next up, we have an article from Dick Casson on the FCPA blog, and he poses a question, has FCPA enforcement stopped? We've had one corporate enforcement action in Q1 of the 21, and, and then he proceeds to sort of list the reasons why. Obviously, the first would be the change in the administration um, on January 20. Uh, we had a new administration come in, and it's not really a change in the philosophy of the administration, change at the political appointees at the top. Um So that sort of changed, number one. We had a change in the Securities and Exchange Commission. Gary Gensler uh, went through the uh, nomination and confirmations and was uh, uh, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, The director of enforcement, though, so she uh, uh, resigned after, I think, six days on the job. So that uh, may have uh, put a bottleneck in um, there. Uh, Dick lists some of the numbers over the past years. It ranged from four to seven to six to five, a little bit lower, in in the first part of the last decade. But here's the key number, Jay. Dick reports that there are 111 publicly disclosed FCPA investigations going on, uh, where the companies disclose that they uh, are either under investigation by the Department of Justice or have self-disclosed and under investigation. So. Uh, even if there hasn't been much activity, there is potentially a well cases that's uh, coming down the pike. And I think as the new attorney general uh, ramps up, we, we have a new deputy attorney general. We have a new head of the criminal section. Uh, we will uh, lost the head of the FCPA unit, um, but uh, we hope a new one in place. We have a deputy acting chief in place. So everything's going to ramp up and I would anticipate we will be uh, up and running, but as uh, as the SAP enforcement action showed us, Jay, there's lots of other enforcement the Department of Justice is pursuing. So uh, I would expect white, our friends in the white-collar defense bar will have a, a, uh, a pretty uh, active uh, second half of 2021.
0: Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we've got something from a fellow podcaster and a friend of the podcast, our good friend Scott Moritz and he synthesizes the FCPA Resource Guide and Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. C-suite executives need to understand what the DOJ and SEC considers when determining if an organization's compliance program meets the definition of effective. Unfortunately, most occupants of the C-suite don't have time to digest hundreds of pages of material on the subject. The best resource to explain what it means to have an effective compliance program is something published by the DOJ and the SEC called, as we've told you, the Resource Guide to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, second edition. Scott's done us all a big favor by taking this 133-page document and has tried to distill it down to the essence to provide organizational leaders with a primer on effective compliance programs. The most important part of the guide is a section called the Hallmarks of Effective Compliance Program, of which there are ten. So here's a quick survey of the ten subjects. Number one, commitment from senior management and clearly articulated policy. While While tone at the top is an often important concept, It doesn't go far enough to convey senior management's duties and responsibilities when it comes to overseeing and being responsible for an effective compliance campaign. Code of conduct and compliance policies and procedures. The code of conduct is the foundation upon which an effective compliance program is built. It should be in plain language, concise, and easily accessible. Everyone should be aware of its existence and how to access it. Three, oversight, autonomy, and resources. The DOJ and the SEC expect the company to have designated one or more senior executives to oversee the design, implementation, and operation of its compliance program. Four, risk assessment. Assessment of risk is fundamental to developing a strong compliance program, and it's another factor the DOJ and SEC evaluate. Training and continuing advice for number five. Senior leadership is expected to be on top of this issue as well and to take ownership, making sure that the compliance program is at the top of training and communication agenda. Six, incentives and disciplinary measures. Disciplining individuals for violations of the compliance program is, of course, important. It's far less common for companies to reward their employees for exceptional behavior. Seven, third-party due diligence and payments. When the company performs its risk assessments, it should entail a comprehensive examination of all categories of a third party who can act on the company's behalf. Eight, confidential reporting and internal investigation. In order for a compliance program to be effective, it should include a mechanism for employees and others to report conduct, misconduct, or violations of the company's policies on a confidential basis. Nine, continuous improvement, periodic testing and review. Risks are dynamic and compliance programs should include processes for self assessment and periodic updating. And number 10, mergers and acquisition, pre acquisition due diligence, and post acquisition integration. A, fami- a failure to integrate an acquisition into the company's pro- compliance program could result in the company being held responsible for successor liability, such as we discussed earlier in the SAP. Finally, uh, Scott adds number 11 investigation, analysis, and remediation. If you've been t- paying attention, you no doubt realize that there are only uh, 10 hallmarks, and we've said 11. Subcompliance guidance issued by the DOJ has unofficially introduced this 11th hallmark called the root cause analysis. For a comprehensive compliance program to be truly effective, It should have a well-functioning and appropriately funded mechanism for the timely and thorough investigations of any allegations or suspicions. As an organizational leader, you must understand that a major fraud, corruption, or misconduct matter could have devastating financial, reputational, and legal effects on your company. Understanding what these risks are and ensuring that your compliance program is robust, well-funded, and empowered to act will significantly lower the company's susceptibility to being negatively impacted, and significantly increase your chances of achieving your company's strategic objectives. Uh, As we said, this article can be reached off of Scott's blog on LinkedIn. And, of course, we will publish it with the show notes. Tom, back to you. Uh, Because we had an
1: uh, interesting piece by Matthew Stevenson, in the Global Anti Corruption blog, where he talked about New York Times op ed piece by Brett Stevens uh, and the zombie idea of corruption risk, he really called Stevens out to task for basically making up facts around the corruption uh, in uh, alleged corruption, I should say, in the Greek healthcare system, uh, which he then spun out to corrupt government programs, basically. And uh, the corruption in the Greek healthcare system, as uh, Matthew Stevenson points out, is due to the incredible salary paid to Greek doctors, and uh, not a sort of uh, endemic fraudulent uh, either government programs or uh, a culture based on fraud. So um, it's sort of interesting. Is when Matthew gets his dander up, and he really got his dander. Uh, points out a really uh, point by point demolition of Stevenson's piece. So really caught my eye, and if you're interested in sort of the underlying theories of, of bribery and corruption, its it also touches upon those and their invidiousness in the greater uh, world uh, economy. So kudos to Matthew Stevenson for this piece, Jay.
0: Thanks, Tom. Next up we ask what does solar winds mean for businesses? Dan Burton takes a look in Corporate Compliance Insights. Nearly four months after the disclosure of the SolarWinds attack, we're continuing to learn more about the nature of the incident. The hack is already considered the most substantial and widest reaching cyber espionage operation against the United States government today. SolarWinds demonstrated how critical it is for companies and organizations to have a full understanding of their supply chains and the potential vulnerabilities at each step of the process solar winds unveiled the true scope of supply chain vulnerabilities another key problem with supply chains is the lack of oversight there are currently no rules and regulations surrounding secure supply chains. We have no rules, no regulations for companies to build secure supply chains. And we have no rules and regulations that require them to build secure code. This puts the onus on companies and organizations themselves to be proactive about protecting and managing the supply chains. The value of risk-based cybersecurity. When looking at SolarWinds incident at a higher level, the attack showed why companies and organizations should shift towards a risk-based, intelligence-driven approach to cybersecurity. Before the number of cyber attacks and the level of sophistication of each attacks are increasing, a risk-based approach to cybersecurity can aid organizations in keeping up with threats against them. Cyber risk quantification facilitates the prioritization of risks, so it's beneficial to have a process that helps in assessing which of the risks are most critical and crucial to your organization. The cybersecurity community is realigning. Cybersecurity is now a critical enabler for most businesses to continue operating, and it needs to be framed in this way, putting it in business terms, framing it in the risk terms. If there is one positive takeaway from the SolarWinds attack, It is the encouraging response of the security community. As individual entities seek to strengthen their security postures and shore up their own internal defenses, moving to an environment of collaboration and information sharing will be key. As we look ahead, the organizations that will be best positioned against future cyber threats will be those that take the time to proactively understand and secure all pieces of the supply chain, and shift to a risk-based view of cybersecurity. After all, we know it's no longer a question of if cybercriminals attack a business, but rather when and what they choose to attack. Tom? So, Jay, next up we have an article from colleague Jonathan Marks, and it's
1: a really thoughtful piece on something that I know you and your colleagues and affiliated monitors uh, worry, think about, and do a lot of work in. And that's uh, governance and corporate culture. And Jonathan also throws in the fraud angle, as is uh, being a certified sort of like fraud examiner. So uh, he, he reviews sort of why you need to measure uh, and analyze culture. Uh, he acknowledges that there is some difficulty in doing so, but says, from the fraud risk perspective, and I, so let me change that word to the anti-corruption Um It is certainly uh, appropriate to do so. He also talks about developing a positive culture about a balanced approach um, and several steps you can take. talks about building a new vision for boards, improving organizational oversight, reviewing your mission, strategy, and purpose, identifying and encouraging ethical leadership, organizing diversity and inclusion uh, within your organization, and measuring stakeholder trust. So it's really an excellent way for every compliance practitioner to think about um, culture, how to measure it, why to measure it, steps you can take to improve it, and really driving culture up and down your organization. So institute or, or transfer the word for fraud risk, and I think it's a, it's a great piece for every
0: compliance professional, Jay. So next up, Tom, uh, we're going to take a look at compliance and supply chain risk management. This article comes to us by Josh Reed and Navix Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. One of the most critical takeaways from the events of 2020 was the fragility of the supply chain for many. Most industries struggled with at least one of the following scenarios. The inability to obtain the raw materials needed to create their products the inability to purchase or import products needed to support an emergency response, or a decrease in demand for products which resulted in slow movement and capital being tied up. Ensuring the downstream suppliers are not creating environmental, social, and governance risk to the organization or addressing risk arising from new regulations impacting third-party data security, an organization's supply chain is subject to creating risk now more than ever. In 2021, compliance professionals have an unparalleled opportunity to contribute their expertise to the overarching supplier risk management strategy. Here are five steps to help an organization proactively identify a potential supply chain interruption and enable proactive decision-making. First, build a bridge between compliance and supply chain management. Learn to speak the language of your colleagues in the supply chain learn logistics, redundancy, and business continuity. Ensure that third-party risk management technology can view and prioritize all risk areas, including compliance, ESG, and supply chain disruption risk. Second, assess opportunities for disruption and points of failure. Segment and risk rank your supplier base by considering key factors, including contributed revenue, country and product line address compliance and reputational risks including ESG develop risk mitigation plans and actions for working with high risk suppliers third strategize supply chain options understand any potential impacts on high risk products including supplier overlaps the supplier's financial viability and country or political risk understand if the technology could be support risk management could support risk monitoring and what supplier data is needed to implement that technology. Implement the right technology to support risk monitoring. Fourth, execute and manage change. Encourage organizational support of plans and needed changes. Support from leadership as well as each department. Deploy proactive processes for resiliency and visibility. And last but not least, optimize for future supply chain disruption plan for future improvement, including identifying resources and developing strategies, monitor and develop change management activities and procedures, and update them regularly based on current circumstances as well as past outcomes. Most organizations never could have predicted the scope of disruptions and the speed of impact experienced during 2020. These events highlighted the importance of cross-functional relationships to ensure that organizations are identifying and mitigating their most crucial risks. Compliance should feel empowered to build a bridge with supply chain team to better serve your organization and most effectively use your limited resources in managing and overseeing your critical third parties. Tom?
1: So, Jay, we now know that zombies are not present at an undisclosed where a person who may or may not be Jay Rosen is now residing? Uh, would that person or any family members, if they did exist, in an disclosed location, uh, be aficionados of fresh fish?
0: Uh, fresh fish? I can't can't put that I can't check that box, Tom. But I'm sure you'll tell me about it.
1: Wow! You just uh, you guys are really no fun, no zombies, and no fish. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, then uh, let me tell you about uh, the largest financial. Financial institution Norway, Norway DNB was fined forty eight point one million dollars for AML violations uh, because in around the Icelandic fishing fleet, uh, the bad guys are laundering money Icelandic fishing fleet uh, into DNB. Uh, so you probably you may or may not Iceland uh, uh lots of activities uh, other than just the Eurovision contest. But um, they, uh, and sing song, drink beer, they also fish. And this was a big enough problem that Norwegian prosecutors brought their largest fine ever for AML violations. So um, once again, a financial institution with substandard AML, basically not knowing who they were doing business with, their KYC program was insufficient. And it turned out that the money coming in through the Icelandic fishing fleet uh, was actually going, being laundered for uh, bad guys across Europe and into the former Soviet Union, now Russia. So, a uh, really uh, interesting way I think, Jay, think about this is the bad guys go targets, and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, banks like that are pretty hard targets. And so DMB is a target, but then who are you doing business with? I think that's a, uh, many compliance practitioners, particularly ABC compliance practitioners don't focus as much on who you're doing business with. They focus on, uh, who's doing business for you with you and how they're doing business. Um, but who you're doing business with can be incredibly important in the money laundering world and in the AML world. So lesson for all compliance practitioners and tomorrow's friday and that's the traditional fish day so i'd invite you to uh go to an un- unnamed restaurant and uh, treat yourself to some fish
0: does it have to be baked in cornflake crumbs or could i possibly get some sushi no i would go full sushi. okay so uh our last story that we're going to touch upon here uh comes from A good friend of the podcast, Dylan Tokar, over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, and I found this a really interesting read, Compliance Officers Take the Lead in Corporate ESG. Dell, Western Union, and other companies are showcasing the work of their compliance departments to attract, yes, ESG-focused investors. Companies looking to show investors that their commitment to sustainability are relying more on the work of their chief compliance officers. Compliance officers are are viewed as leaders in ethics and good corporate policies, and right now they've taken on an enhanced role in disclosing internally to employees and to the market about why they are a responsible corporation. Over the last couple of years, ESG has become a mountaintop of risk. Lawyers and compliance executives are getting more and more involved in everything from pressure testing disclosures to analyzing processes and procedures to tracking and measuring and monitoring the success of their programs. Western Union released its first ESG report in 2019. Last year, it retained a consultant to further refine its ESG strategy, a process that involved assessing which issues were more important to stakeholders in the company's long-term business success. The company has a smaller environmental footprint than many others, So it chose to focus on themes such as doing business ethically and financial inclusion. That meant spotlighting the work done by compliance to prevent money laundering and report other potentially nefarious financial transactions. The legal and compliance function also was involved in developing Western Union's ESG. Its cross-functional effort and the lens of the company are brought to bear in building out a global compliance program, Many of those learnings and best practices are applicable to ESG. On the other hand, Dell Technologies ESG program has four main pillars: sustainability, diversity and inclusion, social philanthropy and ethics and privacy. As Dell's strategy has evolved, the company's function the compliance function has gone from primarily being a lawyer for the company's ESG efforts to now taking on its own ethics and privacy targets. The function has also become involved in helping promote values from other pillars of the program, and this year the company added a course on diversity and inclusion to its annual training program. Pushing environmental and social practices down through supply chains is a challenge for companies looking to meet specific emissions or diversity targets. It's also an area where compliance can also help. Intel has a dedicated supply chain function that partners with compliance and others at the company to screen suppliers on a range of conduct from emissions to chemicals to human rights, conflict minerals, and supplier diversity. At companies with less complex supply chains, such a task can fall more directly on compliance. Some compliance officers and corporate governance experts think that there's room for compliance to take on an even greater role in ESG, as a function's responsibility for managing non-financial risks of all kind grows. With companies taking on more ambitious targets, the need for a way to prove that they are actually carrying them out and the compliance function might be the best way to do so. Tom, why don't you tell us about some of the podcasts and events that we have coming up this week? So, Jay, we premiered a
1: new podcast on the Compliance Podcast, Podcast Network, I'm thrilled to announce Survive and Thrive, co-hosted by uh, myself and Courtney, uh, one of the most fun people in compliance, frankly. Uh, We unpack compliance disasters, uh, explain how they happened, and then give you lessons learned on how to. The first episode is up, and uh, we today a little talked about risk of timing and time. Uh, so we show how that can be a risk. We give an example of what happened and Courtney talks about many of the lessons learned. Uh, so it uh, is really, is a lot of fun. Uh, Courtney is uh, just a hoot. Uh, she is uh, a CCO uh, and DuMont and uh, uh, many people know her from her work in her SCCE days. Uh, thank you, Ed. You'll learn a lot. And, um, You'll uh, you'll have some fun listening to it. Not sure I I say that you get you have fun with uh, all of my podcasts. Uh, Many of them you learn things, but with Courtney, anything Courtney does, it's going to be fun. So check out Survive and Thrive on the Clients Podcast Network. Uh, You and your colleagues have a new podcast up. You want to tell us about that?
0: Sure, Tom. In the latest episode of uh, Integrity Through Compliance. My affiliated monitor colleagues, Jesse Kaplan, Dion Lomax, and Jim Anlio, uh, discuss from business opportunities to compliance risks, healthcare expectations in 2021. Uh, We've linked to it in the show notes, and it's a real uh, vibrant listening half hour, and we hope you'll check it out. Uh, Next up, uh, please join me and Tom at Compliance Week 2021. For information and registration, we've got a link in the show notes. And listeners on this podcast can receive a discount of $200 by using the code PODCAST599 at checkout. Tom, what else do we have on the books? So, Jay,
1: uh, speaking of books, I have uh, one new book out, the FCPAU release uh, published by uh, CCI, Corporate Compliance Insights, Sarah Hadn't a good friend of the podcast. Uh, but the best uh, thing I can say about it, Jay, is it's free through a special rela- arrangement with CCI. You can download it as an ebook. It is probably the best uh, one-volume summary of what happened in uh, the uh, CPA year to date. Also, uh, my uh, we have a publication date in uh, I think June 25th for the Compliance Handbook Second Edition coming out by uh, LexisNexis. I'm in uh, mid-proof reading now. So uh, you can pre-order and get a pretty hefty discount of 25%. So we've uh, linked to that in the show notes as well. And Everyone, this is uh, also Tom linked in the show notes. I'd like to thank you for to, listening uh, to this episode. Great of This Week at FCPA. Opening if you have any questions, you can reach Jay at, at, at Rosen at AffiliatedMonitors.com. Dawn. It's a new You reach dawn. me at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again free. next week where we take up some of the Jay, week's you wanna, uh, take us, take us compliance and ethics from, from, um, stories sure, talk about upcoming uh, and webinars and key podcasts so on the Compliance Podcast not. Network.
0: If you'd like to get in touch with us, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance. Thanks again for listening. Please join us on our live
1: stream on the Q&A. Coming from Innocence, Closed
0: location and Jay Rosen, aka Mr. Facebook Monitor, at 4 can p.m. Reach Central. the initial Jay Thursday. Rosen, you can engage affiliated monitors.com. We look forward to
1: visiting so with you again next Tom week. And thanks myself, I'd you.
0: like to wish all the moms out there a Happy Mother's Day. We might be uh, standing at the world's the happiest place in the world, uh, somewhere in Orange County, observing the ritual of standing in line and celebrating Mother's Day. But for everyone else, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week of FC, FCPA, episode 251, for the week ending May 7th, 2021, the It's a New Dawn edition. We thank you for spending time with us this week. And we look forward to talking to you next week about This Week in FCPA. <music>
1: Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jayrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please join us on our live stream on the Q&A. We'd love to interact with you. It goes up on LinkedIn and Facebook, 4 p.m. Central, every Thursday. You can engage with us then. We look forward to visiting with you again next week, and thanks again for listening.